Hello, and welcome to Michigan's Path for a Prosperous Future, a podcast by the Citizens Research Council of Michigan. This is Lauren Gibbons. I'm a reporter with Bridge Michigan, and I'm your guest host today for a discussion on Michigan's state and local governments. Today, I'm joined by both Bob Schneider, Senior Research Associate of State Affairs at the Citizens Research Council, and Eric Lufer, President of the Citizens Research Council, who have done some very robust work researching the state's population woes. Their work has informed a lot of our reporting at Bridge, Michigan, and has also spurred a statewide conversation that involves the highest level of state government including the governor's office, where Governor Gretchen Whitmer has appointed a new council specifically to look at this issue. Uh, So for this podcast, which is the last in a five-part series, I wanted to talk to you both about your research paper titled Public Sector Challenges and Opportunities, which gives a good overview of where Michigan is and how we got here. Now, this one will be a little different. We'll split it up into state government and local government, and we'll start with Bob to talk about uh, where we're at with the state government. So could you tell us a little bit about where Michigan stands and what our state government uh, revenue situation is looking like? Yeah. So as of these last few years, I think most of the headlines on state finances and the state budget are the the high times we appear to be in. We've just passed the largest state budget ever. The budget has grown substantially in the last few fiscal years. That includes a lot of one-time money, but it's still a, a lot of growth in the budget. I think our report tries to look back and provide perspective on where we're at now relative to where we were looking back 20 to 25 years. And I think that is an appreciation, uh, underappreciated element of the state's fiscal position now and where it's going in the future. So our, our paper looked at the state has two major revenue funds that are the source of 95 plus percent of budget deliberations, our discretionary general fund, general purpose revenue, and the school aid fund. And, and in particular, that general fund, the state's true discretionary revenue that funds a lot of our big departments, correct the correction system, higher education, a, a good chunk of health and human services and public welfare programs, state police, big, big chunks of the state budget has has really had a little bit of a roller coaster ride. If you go back and look, if we go back 25 years, say, and go to fiscal year 2000, general fund, general purpose revenue, that discretionary revenue sat at $10.7 billion in, in fiscal year 20, uh, 2000, roughly 25 years ago. Uh, 20 years later, in, in fiscal year 2020, it was $10.8 billion. So virtually the same. We had no growth over that period. And that's because, and we've talked about this in a prior podcast in the series, the state just had a horrible first decade of this new century. So between 2000 and 2010, employment losses, income losses, which means less sales tax, less income tax, our general fund, general purpose revenue went down more than 20%, went from $10.7 billion to $7.7 billion before in the next decade, it did recover and it got back to where we were. But even today, even with all the revenue growth that we've experienced here in the last few years, and it's been very healthy and large revenue growth, even in 2024, under current projections, we're still going to be 25%. If we adjust for inflation, our revenue is down 25% from where it was 
you know, 24, 25 years ago in fiscal year 2000. Our school aid fund has done better. It has grown on a, an inflation adjusted basis. But when we look at the total revenue, it's still down from where it was at the beginning of the century. And I don't think people have a good appreciation of that. We talk about in the paper some of the ramifications for that on state programs, particularly those that lean heavy, heavy on the general fund. Things are really good right now, but we basically refilled a hole that was dug over over a 10-year period, and we still have a lot of areas in the budget that just haven't been restored. Yeah, and I know as someone who's followed this for just under a decade now, the post-pandemic look at the pictures of the state revenues have just been kind of mind-boggling, just a lot of money to think about or even to comprehend how much money was coming in with the surplus. But that's certainly not going to last forever. And we're certainly nearing the end of that. What does it look like in the next couple of years as Michigan kind of begins to shrink back and isn't feeling the benefits of the federal COVID-19 money, the infrastructure money, the surplus that was coming in part because of these COVID policies. What what does that look like for Michigan? Yeah. This budget that was just enacted was a really big opportunity for the, the state with all of that money in the bank and a lot of extra revenue on an ongoing basis. We had a chance to really restructure the state budget. So we added a lot of money to the state budget for sure. But we chose even more to to give some of that money back to taxpayers in the form of tax relief, earned income tax credit, retirement to how we treat retirement income much more generously now, kind of reversing something we did 10 years ago. So most of that extra revenue was given back to taxpayers in the form of tax relief. And some of it was added to the budget. And going forward, we're still going to have growth in the budget. And that's the good news. We talk, we have a very healthy budget stabilization fund balance right now. So if the recession happens to hit the U.S. and the state in the coming years, we should be pretty well protected, as good as we have been, as well protected as we have been in many years, 20 plus years. Uh, But what we point out in the report, what we try to get to is the legacy of that bad decade and from 2000 to 2010, we still have issues with programs that effectively were cut in an absolute basis and especially on an inflation-adjusted basis in the state budget that aren't back yet. And we've probably just spent most of our chance. If we wanted to go the direction of restoring more, we could. We talk about some of them in the report. If we look at funding for higher education, funding to our universities and community colleges on an inflation adjusted basis, we talked about how far down general fund revenue is. These programs rely heavily on the general fund. We're 26% down from where we were at the beginning of the century. And revenue sharing, Eric will be talking later about the challenges that local governments face. We're down 35% in terms of inflation-adjusted funding from where we were in 2000. If we look, a big driver of growth in the budget has been our Department of Health and Human Services. That budget has grown tremendously on an overall basis, but a lot of that is Medicaid. And we have a food assistance program that's grown tremendously. Those are either all or, in Medicaid's case, mostly federally funded programs. Our safety net programs haven't fared well. We have a cash assistance program called the Family Independence Program. It's just cash assistance for low-income families with children. And those children are going to be the ones entering kindergarten and going through our K-12 system and that we hope will, will come out of it, as we talked about in a previous podcast, with a college credential of some kind. 
Funding for that is down on an inflation adjust, adjusted basis by 86%. We served 60, 70, 80,000 families in that program decades ago, and now we're serving about 12,000 families. It's kind of a shell of what it used to be. Childcare subsidies, which help folks get to the workplace on an inflation adjusted basis, down 58%. So these are just examples of the impacts that that bad decade had. We've done a little restoring in certain areas and, and, and caught up on an actual dollar basis, but those programs are still well behind in terms of the buying power, what we're getting from those programs now compared to where we were 25 years ago. So we have, and the challenge is we have some growth that's going to continue in the state budget. We have a good rainy day fund, but we don't have the kind of growth that it would take to make a big dent in some of the inflation-adjusted deficits, I guess, for lack of a better word, that we just talked about. And that gets into my next question, which was, there's a reason we're talking about revenues and the state budget as part of the population conversation, right? I think it's important to to note why this matters for population and getting more people to move to Michigan. So could you, more broadly speaking, just speak a little to that and what state revenue and budget trends mean for addressing Michigan's population issues? Right. So I guess, one, we're fortunate that we still expect to have growth to help us address some of the, the challenges that will come. The bad news is we don't have the kind of big revenue surplus that we had 12 months ago or the kind of big fund balances that we had. A lot of that has been spent. And we are going to have challenges. Population growth brings more needs. Our current trajectory of population decline, you know, is going to bring healthcare workforce challenges. The one part of our population that will grow as current projections hold over the next 20 to 30 years is our very elderly population. The 75 and older uh, population is our highest growth component of our population. Well, that means a lot more people in nursing homes. Uh, Medicaid is a heavy funder of nursing homes. It means that we're going to have a greater proportion of the people out of the workforce, likely, rather than in the workforce. And that probably will depress our capacity to continue to grow revenue if that doesn't change. Helping draw people to Michigan can help to mitigate some of that challenge. But in general, I think we had a short-term opportunity to really restructure the state budget to the extent we took our shot at that. We did grow the budget in certain areas, but we also gave back a lot of revenue in the form of tax relief. And now we're going to have to live on more normal revenue growth, even though we talked about some of these programs, higher education, some of the safety net programs, revenue sharing that are still down significantly. And as Eric will talk about shortly, local governments facing some constraints and being able to do things that are necessary to, for instance, make Michigan a more attractive place for people. People want to move here if we have attractive core cities and exciting places to live. Our, our, our revenue situation now is more constrained in having a lot of extra revenue to do that. So we'll have to make some choices if that's the direction we want to move in. Absolutely. And uh, that is actually a great transition point to move into our discussion on local government um, and what uh, our cities and townships and municipalities uh, uh, need to address some of the population issues. So I will uh, switch it over to Eric. Um, 
And to kind of uh, piggyback right off of that conversation, uh, let's talk about revenue sharing. What are some of the trends that we have been experiencing in terms of how much money cities and other local governments are getting from the state? And what are some of the constraints? Yeah. So to understand this issue, you have to understand the background of state revenue sharing. Many other states have cast their property tax in an equal or a lesser role, and they rely heavily on local sales taxes, local income taxes. Some of them just have a whole menu of local option taxes that allow the local governments to benefit from the economic activity that occurs within them. Michigan took a different route. With 1,800 units of government, you could quickly realize the issues that you would get into with each of them having taxing authority to do all the sales or income or everything else. So somewhere along the line, it sort of started in the 1930s as the state preempting local government from levying part of its taxation and saying, well, we'll do it for you and we'll send the money back. And that grew over time. And eventually the state said, look, rather than local governments having all these different taxes, what if the state collected those taxes? You have a single taxpayer levying, administering the tax, and we will send it back to local governments. It sounds good until you stop. This was never been a very reliable source of income, but the state before only nibbled around the edges. Times got tough and they would underfund it in some way. In 2001, 2002, 2003, and that's that whole decade there, the state really leaned on state revenue sharing to local units of government and to funding for higher education to help balance the state budget. To the tune that you heard from Bob, a third of the funding that should be going in there, otherwise not coming. So what does that affect? Many of our smallest local units of government were only getting constitutional revenue sharing or or would get a very small share of what we call statutory revenue sharing that is done to recognize the fiscal needs of local units of government they're losing some money because of the underfunding of revenue sharing, but not in a real big way. Most of the burden of the underfunding, the state's underfunding of revenue sharing, using that money that was that was prior set aside to help fund our local governments, that's coming out of our biggest cities, our charter townships, the biggest units of government where most of the people live and most of the services are provided. So that policy choice of the state many iterations ago in our day and age of term limited legislators is having real consequences on today's ability of our state and local or of our local governments, our cities, our villages, our townships, our county governments to provide the services that make Michigan a quality place where people feel safe and um, feel a quality of life. 
Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point because all of the things that people look for in terms of transportation, having access to things in your neighborhood, the schools, you know, all those different things, those are primarily operated at the local government level. There is like the more high level state government aspects of this, but when people are looking for a community, obviously the community is on the hook for a lot of that stuff. So what are some of the options cities have to potentially work around this big revenue hole and perhaps start to offer some of these services? I know that they're limited in a lot of ways, but... Yeah, really what we've seen is a retrenchment. Your observation is right on, right? When people think about where they want to live, they're thinking about public safety. Are you going to be safe there? Is the fire department going to show up if there's an emergency? They want to know that there's good schools. They want to know that there's a park down the block to take the kids to push them on the swing set. They want to know that the roads are safe and there's sidewalks to walk on, get out and do things. They want a vibrant downtown that you can get to easily and and enjoy. So that's not state government. That's local government. And And sometimes I think our state representatives lose sight of that, that while the state provides the framework for all this to happen, quality of life is provided at the local government level. In the absence of state revenue sharing, which was the second largest source, but it's a, a significant source of funding, our local governments rely more and more on the property tax to fund um, the services they provide. We have a number of limitations on the property tax, so it cannot grow in a significant way on its own, um, it's you know pegged to inflation, and and there's a lot of detail that go into that that we don't need to cover here. Given those limitations, the local governments are looking to develop every square inch of the city or township, and we see that that is accentuated urban sprawl that existed even before these limitations, but it's more and more so now that you get, you benefit as a local unit government by developing more and more of your territory, the jurisdiction. So green space turning into developed land and they're dealing with it by increasing tax rates. Uh, We had a, a study from last year that documented a very high majority of our cities, our townships, our county governments have uh, increased tax rates over the last 10 years because of the limitations that are in place because of the lack of state revenue sharing. They really have nowhere else to go. So Michigan, we have local option income taxes available to cities. Of our 250 so cities in the state, only 24 of them actually love it. It's, it's mostly our bigger cities are doing that. And sort of a hodgepodge of other local governments. That means a whole lot of other cities have that option available to them, but they don't see it as a viable option either for administrative or political reasons. Other states have, as I suggested before, local option sales taxes. We have a constitutional uh, set of provisions that get in the way of local governments doing that. They have other things in, in Michigan, Local governments only have available what the legislature, what state law makes available to them, and our our 
legislature or state policymakers have not made those available to them. At that point, you turn to fees and fines and nickel and dime, and that doesn't add up to much. All of it affects quality of life and where people want to live. And another aspect of your research that I wanted to touch on is the regionality aspect, certainly when a small local government is trying to provide these services, experience those limitations, it could be a little more complicated than the big city next door. So what systems are in place to perhaps encourage regional development? And what are some of the challenges that communities may face there? Yeah, so at some point along the line here, 1,800 units of government. And if, if you look at a map of Michigan, it's just a huge checkerboard with little dots carved out for some of the cities. We have structured our local government in a very inefficient way. It provides government close to the people, which is a legitimate value but given the limitations that are in place, given the revenue structure that we just talked about, local governments are challenged to provide the services that their citizens need. And then to stack an inefficient structure on top of that creates challenges. What we've suggested in our report and other research that we've done in earlier times is that at some point, we need to think about blowing up the mold in Michigan and how can we do things in ways similar to what other states do, the local governments in other states, and that would involve more of a regional delivery of services. You think regional, and that could be as big as I'm sitting in Livonia, sort of the the middle of the Semcog region, a seven-county area, and the state has other major regions, they call them. But county government, when you think about it, is a regional entity. It is a conglomeration of the local governments within it. And our studies suggest that there's a lot of opportunities to to move things to that regional level. And you can still break things down and, and have that local flavor to them. But given that cost is so much of the issue, we need to overcome that by not sticking to the way we've done things going back to the 1830s and 1840s and this um, horse and buggy way of, of providing government. We have advances in telecommunications and transportation. It, we need not have the most local units of government providing all of the services we still would count on them to you know, do planning and zoning and things like that, that create the culture and make Frankenmuth a place that's unique in, in Michigan and unique in a lot of the United States and you know, Mackinac Island and the, the West coast with all the great cities and the access to the lakes and so on. We should value that, but we need to find some compromise in finding ways to do more and more services at the regional level. 
And I'll end with this question. You've suggested a lot of big changes that policymakers should consider in the short term. Are there any smaller bites at the apple that state and local governments can take to start offering or finding solutions to providing these services that would suggest an investment in growing the population? This really puts a bow on everything that we've talked about before. Um, we really need to think about uh, what it is that attracts talent and especially the young talent today want uh, vibrant downtowns. They want public transit that uh, allows them to get around without relying on a car. They're worried about the future and climate change. So doing I, I used this term before, doing the blocking and tackling, doing the basic things that we expect of our local units of government, but doing it with an eye toward attracting that talent and, and making your communities attractive, viable places. I, I think if we could do better at that, then a lot of the other things could fall in line. Well, on that note, uh, that... Uh has it brings us to the last in a series of installments in Michigan's Path to a Prosperous Future podcast with the Citizens Research Council of Michigan and Bridge Michigan. I'm Lauren Gibbons. I've been your guest host. Uh, I was joined today by Bob Schneider and Eric Lufer. Thanks so much for listening. The Citizens Research Council of Michigan has been providing lawmakers, academics, and the media, and all Michiganders, really, with factual, unbiased, independent information on significant issues concerning state and local government, organization, and finance for 107 years. Our research is available to you. Go online at crcmich.org and on Twitter at crcmich. Download our research, check out our numerous blogs, and listen to our podcasts. And while you're there, please consider supporting our research with a donation. We rely on charitable donations for our work. This has been a Facts Matter podcast, a presentation of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan.